where we've been focusing the last number of weeks on the 23rd Psalm. In part one, we learned that we must make sure that we are following the right shepherd. In part two, we learned that though the sheep may go astray, the good shepherd never stops looking for them. And today, we are uh, going to continue to look at this psalm, at the table, the cup, and the house. And so we've had the brave uh, children come forward, not just children, children and teenagers, and recite the psalm. And so I want to see how all of you are doing with the recital, and we're going to stand once again and recite it together, the 23rd Psalm. Would you stand with me? And if you can do it without looking at the words, I want you to, to give it a try today. Let's recite this together. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, we pray that once again these words, this beautiful prayer of trust, of your goodness, would continue to sink into our hearts, into our minds, into our very souls, that each one of us would grow in the assurance and confidence to say that you are my shepherd, I shall not want. That there is no circumstance in life, including the valley of the shadow of death, that we will fear evil, for you are with us. And we pray, Lord, that this morning as we continue to look at this word and your provision for our lives, that we could truly say, I shall not want. So we pray that you would bless your word, be with each one of us. Uh, Lord, you know our needs, you know our hearts, you know where we are at as individuals, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would minister. I pray that you would speak through me. May the words be yours, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, a Sunday school teacher asked his class one day, how many of you can quote from memory the 23rd Psalm? And while several of the children in the class raised their hands, including a little girl who was only four years old, the teacher was surprised and a little impressed that someone so young would already have memorized the 23rd Psalm. So he asked her if she would recite it for the class. So she stood up and said, The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. (laughs) Now she may have mixed up the words just a little bit, But I think she understood the message perfectly. The Lord is my shepherd. That's all I want. Is the good shepherd all that you want in life? Or is there something or someone that you want more? And that is the first lesson for our consideration this morning, is that the Lord, the the good shepherd, he is not a means to an end. He is the end itself. You see, if Jesus is your shepherd then everything else becomes secondary in importance. For when the good shepherd is all that you want, then you are guaranteed to have all that you need. 
In Psalm 34, verses 9 and 10, we read this. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and weary, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. You see, in Scripture, there is a sharp distinction made between wants and needs. I may think I need a new car, but that's actually just a want. I'd really want a new car, but like I said, it's just a want. And Jesus told us this, God our Father knows what we need. He told us that God, in fact, delights in blessing his children with good things. He said, if even earthly fathers know how to give their children good things, how much more does your heavenly Father delight in giving good gifts to his children? So, When we are looking at these things and we see the difference between wants and needs, we must remember that God knows what we truly need. Even if we think we need it, he knows the difference between our wants and our needs. And so we're going to be looking at more of those good things in Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6 in just a moment. But before I do, I need to address something that's of vital importance in this area of our lives. Too many Christians want things more than they want God himself. And from this mindset, God is viewed as simply the provider, the means to acquiring the things that I want. And so their motive for seeking God is not for God's sake himself. It's not for knowing him more about having deeper intimacy with him. Their motive for seeking God is for what God can do for them, for what God can provide them with. And the difference may seem subtle, but the implications are massive. One summer when I was around 12 years old, I invited one of my best friends over, and he happened to bring along a friend of his who just happened to be a neighbor to our family, lived a few miles down the road. And I wasn't so sure about this, but he introduced us, and I said, okay, well, let's, let's play. And so that's what we did, and we spent the rest of the afternoon ripping around on our bikes and doing other things. All that is until everything changed the moment this new neighbor boy that I just met spotted my prized possession, my Honda CT70 minibike. Does anyone here own a minibike, a Honda CT70? I I know there's one over here. Beautiful bike, three-speed, no clutch, just perfect for a 12-year-old to drive. It was my prized possession. It was parked behind the garage, and this neighbor boy... He immediately, when he saw the bike, began to just beg me if he could drive it. Well, I was a little hesitant to let, I just met this guy, and, but he wouldn't stop begging. He was incessant. He, he wouldn't let it go, and I tried to steer us other places, but he wouldn't let it go. So I asked him, have you ever driven one of these before? And no, he hadn't, and that, oh man. But finally, I was like, okay, I'll let you drive. I'll show you how. Got him on the bike after a few little... Uh, false starts he finally got off and and off he cruised with it and while I was watching nervously as he kind of cruised his way around the yard and he was getting the hang of it fairly quickly but then the problem became he wouldn't stop he just kept going around and around and around the yard and finally we're kind of waving for him to come over and stop and he just kept going and all of a sudden he's on the road and he's off down the road and I'm thinking oh man this is not good well it took quite a while to finally get him to come back over. He just didn't want to stop driving. We finally managed to get him off of it. 
We go off, we have supper, they leave. The very next day, guess who shows up unannounced on his pedal bike in our yard? The neighbor boy. Guess what he wanted to do? Ride my mini bike. The very next day, the same thing happened. And this went on and on for varying uh, degrees for the next couple of weeks. And every time he would come over, I would try to get him to do other things with me. But before very long, he would always say something like, we should go ride the dirt bike, which really meant he would ride, I would watch, hoping he didn't crash it, which did happen a few times. After some time of this, well, I shouldn't say it didn't take very long at all for me to begin feeling like I was being used. He didn't want his friendship with me for me. He wanted a friendship with me for my dirt bike. And I don't think I need to tell you how that made me feel. How do you think God feels when we treat him in that way? How do you think he feels when we seek him, not for intimacy and friendship, not seeking him in his glory and his beauty for who he is, but for only seeking him for what he can do for us? And this can often be reflected in our prayer life. We go into our prayers and we have this bucket list of, God, I need you to do this, this, and this, and give me this, this, and that. But how much time do we spend adoring him, worshiping him for who he is, thanking him for what he has done for us, seeking the intimacy that comes from knowing him? You see, God sought us out not because of what we could do for him. God sought us out because he simply loves us and he desires a relationship with us. So let me ask you, do you seek God for his presence or his presence? A little fun with grammar. You'll understand our English language there. Do you seek God solely for who he is or because you want to ride his mini bike, so to speak? You see, there's a difference. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus addressed our human anxieties about material things. He, he addressed our need for you know, shelter and clothing and food and all of these sorts of things and how we can get so wrapped up and anxious about acquiring these things, about having more of them, that even if we have what we need for the day, we're already worried about, will I have enough for tomorrow? Will I have enough for next week? Will I have enough for retirement? And on and on. We get so wound up about all of these things. And Jesus addressed that. And he said this, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. You see, when we seek God for who he is, we can rest in the assurance that our needs will be provided for. But when we're always wrapped up in our needs about what we want or about what we think we want or think we need, then we miss the intimacy of knowing God simply for who he is. Remember, when the good shepherd is all that you want, then you are guaranteed to have all that you need. But when you seek him primarily for your wants, then your deepest need, which is intimacy with him, will elude you. Seek the good shepherd for his sake alone, and then you will quickly discover how much he delights in you and will receive more blessings poured out on your life than your cup can handle. And we'll see that in the next verse. The good shepherd is not a means to an end. He is the end itself. For when all of the needs and striving of this life is over, who will we enjoy for all of eternity if not our Lord and Savior? He is not the means to an end. Our Lord and Savior is the end itself. 
And we will worship him and delight in him for all of eternity. And God wants us to begin doing that even right now today. Lesson two for this morning. Under the shepherd's care, your every need is met. Psalm 23 verse 5 says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Now at first glance, the reference to a table makes it appear as though the psalmist is switching gears away from the shepherd and sheep relationship and towards something else. Because after all, who here has ever seen a sheep sitting at a table? Anyone seen a sheep sitting? I think there's a picture of dogs, a painting of dogs at a table. I've never seen one with sheep. But we can't quite wrap our minds around this. It seems as though we're going from sheep and shepherd to something else. But this isn't necessarily the case. In the Hebrew language... To prepare a table was an expression that is best literally understood as to prepare a lavish meal or a feast. In Psalm chapter 78, verse 19, the psalmist recounts how the Israelites complained against God while they were wandering in the wilderness. And this is what they said. And they tested God in their hearts by asking for the food of their fancy. Yes, they spoke against God, and they said... Can God prepare a table in the wilderness? The same expression, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? This expression is not referring to a literal table, but to the food itself. And of course, the most common setting for a feast is at a table. But in order for the expression to work with sheep, the feast didn't have to take place at a literal table. It's like when we use expressions that The words don't exactly mean what we're getting at. Something like, you'll say, you really knocked yourself out making that supper. It's an expression, right? We don't mean that you literally knocked yourself out. At least, I hope not. If you went to that effort, there's there's probably a problem. But what we're getting at with that expression is that you put in a lot of effort. You You really went all out. Even that's an expression. But we see the effort you put in. And we use expressions, we use phrases to get across a meaning. It's the same way with this. You prepare a table before me. It's an expression saying, you have placed a feast before me. And the thought is directly connected to verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You see, the feast that the shepherd has placed before his sheep is not stingy. It's lavish. There is not one thing missing from the banquet that could cause the sheep to say, you know, this is pretty good, but it could really use some more sweet clover. The sheep can't say that. It is all there and more. So much so that, in fact, he declares, my cup runs over. There is more than enough. I've held out my cup. You have poured out your blessings into it, and it is, it is not just to the brim. It is running over. There's more than my cup can handle. And this is how God, our Father, desires to bless each one of us. Two quick examples from Jesus' miracles that illustrate that point. The first one, when he turned the water into wine at the wedding in Cana, it wasn't just enough to keep the feast going for a little bit longer. He didn't say, I'm just going to make one jar just to tide you over a little bit more. No, he prepared in this miracle an excess amount He prepared enough for the feast to continue on for many days. 
And it wasn't just the quantity that he produced, it was the quality. When it was given to the host of the wedding, he declared that this was the best wine. Usually you save the the worst wine for the end when they're a little intoxicated and don't care so much anymore on the quality. But he says, you have saved the best wine for last. Not only was there quantity, but there was quality. Second example, when Jesus fed a hungry crowd of people with only a couple of small fish and a few loaves of bread, he didn't give any instructions to the crowd or to his disciples like this. He didn't say, only take one of each to make sure that everyone gets some. Then if there's leftovers, you can have some more. There was no instructions like that. No, he began multiplying it and passing it out. He keeps doing it. We don't know how long he did it for, but he did it long enough that the text tells us that everyone ate their fill, and when they cleaned up the leftovers, they filled 12 large baskets. We're talking excess. We're talking provision over and above. Because remember, this was a crowd of 5,000 men plus women and children They hadn't eaten in a long time, so they were hungry. So they would have eaten their fill, means they ate to the point of, oh man, I cannot eat another fish. And there's still 12 baskets of leftovers. Friends, I want this to sink in this morning. God is not stingy. In fact, God delights in blessing us. And though those blessings are physical in many avenues of life, and we are experiencing physical blessings this morning, the greatest blessings of God are spiritual. They are the unseen, the things that he gives us through his presence and by his Holy Spirit. We could get, we get just look at the, the fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians and see the spiritual blessings of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control. All of these things that God blesses us with, you can't put a price tag on these things. And God doesn't just want to give us a little bit of these things. He wants to bless us abundantly. This is the God that we serve. The shepherd leads his sheep into this green pasture. The feast is prepared. They lack for nothing. Our third lesson for this morning is that under the shepherd's care, your enemies can only watch you feast. Now recall where the shepherd and the sheep are in their journey. Last week, we looked at how they had just passed through what? Where did they go through? Verse 4. Anyone? That's right. Valley of the shadow of death. They've just made it through. They've come through all of the dangers. They've made it past the wolves and the thieves. They've avoided the pitfalls and the potential for flash floods. And now safely through on the other side, it is time to feast because this is where they were headed. This is why the shepherd took them through that deep, dark valley. It was because there was something better on the other side. And the best part is this. Their enemies can only watch in helplessness. Now, there are a couple of different situations that David could have been referring to here about you prepare a table before me, a feast before me in the presence of mine enemies. There's a couple of situations that David could easily have been referring to. The first one is the obvious. As a shepherd, he knew that the wolves were looking for their own feast of lamb chops and mutton stew, right? They're thinking, 
a table before me is this flock passing through my terrain, and I am going to snatch one of those, and we are going to feast tonight. But now the wolves miss their chance. And so from the hills with empty bellies, they can only watch helplessly as the sheep are now filling their bellies on the feast of the lush green pastures. So here we see this idea of they've made it past the danger. Their enemies can only watch as they feast. The second reference to this type of situation is that the shepherd would also use olive oil to anoint the wounds of the sheep to help soothe them and speed healing. You anoint my head with oil. The sheep would pass by the shepherd. He would have a horn of oil in his hand, and if he saw a wound, he would anoint it. And this soothing oil would help bring healing and calm the sheep. This implies that they've come through some danger. Perhaps a wolf scarred one of them along the way, but they've made it through. And now they are feasting, there is healing, there is restoration, and their enemies can only watch. The second thing that David is obviously referring to is from his own life experience. On a number of occasions, David was hunted in the wilderness by King Saul like a wild animal. While in the wilderness, often quite literally in the presence of his enemies, God provided for all of David's needs in a wide variety of ways. And each time that it looked like David was cornered, trapped, no way out, God always provided a way of escape. And this happened with such frequency in David's life that he developed this peaceful calm and trust in God even when his enemies were knocking at the door. Of this, Charles Spurgeon once wrote, When a soldier is in the presence of his enemies... If he eats at all, he snatches a hasty meal, and away he hastens to the fight. But observe, thou preparest a table. Just as a servant does when she unfolds the cloth and displays the ornaments of the feast on an ordinary peaceful occasion, nothing is hurried, there is no confusion, no disturbance. The enemy is at the door, and yet God prepares a table, and the Christian sits down and eats as if everything were in perfect peace. Oh, the peace which Jehovah gives to his people, even in the midst of the most trying of circumstances. What enemies do you face today? What dangers threaten your path? Let them growl and curse and threaten all they want. But if you are a sheep of the good shepherd... If you are a child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, then you can feast in peace and contentment, even with the enemy knocking at your door. How is that possible? Well, just remember that if the shepherd is near, you have nothing to fear. In Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, God gives this promise to his servants. Listen to what he says. No weapon forged against you will prevail. And you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. No weapon forged against you will prevail. Now just to be clear, it doesn't say no weapon forged against you will ever wound you. You see, we cannot expect to go through life's battles completely unscathed. The sheep could be wounded by the wolves. And we must remember that our Lord Jesus himself was wounded and scarred 
in the battle for our souls. But though the weapons Satan used against Jesus were fearsome, Jesus ultimately prevailed and defeated Satan, sin, and death by rising from the grave victorious. In the same way, the weapons that Satan uses against you can be fearsome as well. Discouragement, gossip, slander, despair, deceit, and temptations of all types and stripes he will hurl at you. Paul called them the fiery darts of the devil. But though they will be hurled, though you cannot expect to make it through life without scars, when you are safe in Christ's care, they will not and cannot prevail in the end. For just as David was ruthlessly pursued by Saul, God vindicated David. And in the end, he was established as king over the nation. And he promises the same to all who will trust and serve him. So don't let the enemy, don't let the destroyer come and rob your joy and peace. For under the good shepherd's care, you can feast and all the enemy can do is watch. When businessman Alan Emery was in the wool business, he once spent an evening with a shepherd on the Texas prairie. During the night, the long wail of coyotes pierced the air. The shepherd's dogs growled and peered into the darkness. The sheep, which had been sleeping, lumbered to their feet, alarmed, and began bleeding pitifully. The shepherd tossed more logs into the fire. The flames shot up, and in the glow, Alan looked and saw thousands of little lights. He realized that those were the reflections of the fire glowing in the eyes of the sheep. In the midst of danger, he observed, the sheep were not looking out into the darkness, but they were keeping their eyes set in the direction of their safety. They were looking towards their shepherd. And I couldn't help but think of Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. My friends, if you remember nothing else from this series on Psalm 23, I want you to remember this. If the shepherd is near, you have nothing to fear. If the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want, for he is with you. There is no evil that is so great in this world that you need to be trembling or shaking, because if the shepherd, the Lord of creation, the one who faced the cross scorning its shame, going into the grave, rising from the dead, is with you right now today, what can the enemy do against you? What can he do to rob you of the peace and joy in your heart that the Lord is your shepherd, you shall not want? So keep your eyes fixed upon Jesus. Stay close by his side. Seek him and experience the lessons of today's text for yourself. The good shepherd is not a means to an end. He is the end itself. Under the shepherd's care, your every need is met. And under the shepherd's care, your enemies can only watch you feast. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you are the shepherd and the guardian of our souls. The enemy has tried everything. He has done everything in his power to thwart your work of redemption for mankind. But at every turn, you have prevailed. Even when it looked like he was winning, even when you were pierced, Lord Jesus, even when you hung on the cross and Satan was so sure that he had been victorious, 
There, Lord, you snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. You emerged victorious from the grave. And the most fearsome weapon that Satan forged against you was defeated and rendered harmless and powerless against you forevermore. You prevailed. And so, Lord, today, as your children, by no power of our own, but simply through faith in you and what you have done for us and what you continue to do in us, we today stand on your word and claim this promise for ourselves, that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We trust that you will provide for us, Lord, not only physically, but spiritually, that we can feast from your hand, and all the enemy can do is watch. And so I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your presence, your blessing, onto each one of our lives. I pray, Lord, that you would work on our attitude of our hearts as to why we seek you, not only as a means to an end, but that you are the end itself, to gaze upon your beauty, to reflect on your goodness, your mercy, and your grace, to simply bask in the knowledge that you love us, not for anything that we could do for you, but simply because you have chosen to love us. Lord, it is wonderful. I pray that this would sink deeper into our hearts, into our lives, into our actions, Lord, and may we reflect you in all that we say and do. Bless this church. Unify us by your spirit, I pray. And send us out in your name as your hands and feet this week, I pray in Jesus' name.